Okay, Luke chapter 6, we're going to be looking today again at verses 37 to 45. Jesus said, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Let me set up the context real quickly for this message. The the things that came into the world over the space of a, a few short years with Jesus were nothing less than the most astounding things and the most wonderful things that the world had ever seen this side of the Garden of Eden. Such a display of power. And with that display of power, love. Love. What the world had been used to since the fall was that display of power was for self-exaltation. Somebody would be put down. Somebody would be crushed. A nation would be crushed. And another nation's military would advance. And kingdoms would rise. And kingdoms would fall with every display of power. And yet with the Lord Jesus Christ, men were not put down. Men were not treaded upon or crushed. They were lifted up. So because every display of power was for love's sake, never had there been so much reason for hope. At the word of Jesus, every kind of human despair, the physical and the spiritual kinds, were being reversed. And yet the world opposed Jesus Christ. And it's that opposition, that that narrative that sets up Jesus' message. How must we, as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, live in a world that opposes our Lord. How do we live? So Jesus told us at the beginning of his message that starts in chapter 6, verse 20. He assured us that the life that is humanly opposed for his sake is in fact divinely and supremely blessed. He warned those who live only for themselves and for this world that they have already all the payoff that they are ever going to have. And then he taught us, as we respond to the world's opposition, we are to love our enemies. We are to give. 
We are to bless. We are to pray. We are to give generously without expecting anything in return. We are to be merciful. For our Father in heaven has been merciful to us. And today, we're getting into more practical instruction from Jesus that for all of its practicality is very difficult for us to follow. Very practical commandments here, right? But very difficult for us to follow in urging us to live a life like his own. Jesus exposes in these several verses that we've read these sinful heart attitudes of blind pride and judgmentalism that have the potential to undo all of our good service. And this morning, what I want us to focus on are two keys that that must be in place if we are going to be free to love, if we're going to be free from judgmentalism and pride. So here are those keys. Number one, you must know your Savior. And two, like it, you must know yourself. You must know your Savior and you must know yourself. Jesus begins with four commands in verses 37 and the first part of verse 38 um, that are well known to us, especially this first one. I don't think that there is a command in Scripture that is better known in our day than the command, judge not. Let's review those verses quickly. Judge not, Jesus said, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, because of how this verse is used today, I really should say, because of how this verse is misused today, we need to say, first of all, what this does not mean. Whenever the church today points out sin, whenever we call sin for what it is, this verse gets thrown back in our face, doesn't it? Are we wrong to say that sin is sin? What is sin and what is not sin? Are we wrong to point out sin when we see it? And the answer must be absolutely, unequivocally, no, we are not wrong to point out sin. I'll give you two reasons. Most basically, because we must call a sin a sin, because the sinless don't need a Savior. The sinless don't need a Savior. If we can't point out a sin, we can't point out the sinner to the Savior. Right? So we must, if we're going to call the lost to be found, if we're going to call the the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised, if we're going to call sinners to repentance for life, we must call out the sin. We must say what is sin and what is not sin. Second, we know Jesus is not telling us, he's not saying don't make any moral evaluations. He's not telling us do not make any moral judgment calls. We know that because in this very section, which we've read, Jesus instructs us on moral discernment and making careful moral judgment calls. So, you know, unless Jesus is confused, he must not be saying, don't judge. Absolutely do not judge. Don't make any judgment calls whatsoever. Because it would be like saying, 
Don't judge anything ever. You know, something else. What did I say at the beginning? I forget. Okay, make moral judgment calls. Is Jesus, uh, is he uh, contradicting himself? Is he confused? Clearly not. You know, nobody would suggest that. So what does this mean? I think we really do get it. I think we understand. This does have the feel of Jesus. The spirit of Christ is in this. We must make moral judgments. But we are forbidden from having the spirit of judgmentalism. The judgmental. Let's talk about the judgmental for a little bit. Let's think about our own hearts and see if this at all sounds like us. The judgmental say, I call him as I see him. And they presume to see everything. And so the judgmental make these vast, sweeping prejudgments. They don't think that they need to go into any kind of fact-finding because they're experts at spotting faults. They're not fact-finders, they're fault-finders. From their judgment seats, which they presume to sit upon, they look down on sinners. They call their fall, and then they take pleasure in the fall and in being the one to call it. Their mission is not to find the lost. Their mission is to write them off. That's the judgmental. This is a terrible thing, a terrible attitude to have in our hearts. And the truth is, we have been guilty. We have been guilty. All of us at at some point to some measure have been guilty of being judgmental. So when the church speaks out against sin, forthrightly, clearly, directly, and the world throws the Bible back in our face and says, your scripture says, do not judge what do you think you're doing. We know that the world doesn't know what they speak of. They don't know what they speak of, but at the same time, we have to admit they speak better than what they know because we have been guilty. How can we be the kind of person that is not judgmental and condemning, but forgiving and giving. We must know our Savior, and we must know ourselves. First, know your Savior. How, do we, how can we get to know Jesus and really get a feel for the heart of Christ? We have to look at his life. Look at the interactions that Jesus had with sinners. Was Jesus unduly harsh? He was harsh at times, but unduly harsh. Was he hypercritical? I think a case in point would be his interaction with that Samaritan woman at the, the well of Jacob in John chapter 4. Jesus was very forthright with her. He identified her sin for her multiple marital failures and her current cohabitation. He pointed it out. She said... Um, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your husband. But why did he do that? What was he after? He was not looking to call her fall. He was aiming to call her to life. Not to tread upon her, but to raise her up. He was not aiming to bind her in guilt, but to loose her from those bonds. So why did he have to identify her sin? Because she needed to know that she was captive to that guilt. She was captive to those bonds. And those bonds, she had tied herself. She needed to know that. 
We need to know our Savior and how He dealt with, as the holy, innocent Son of God, those who were at the bottom of the the, uh, moral ladder, the final rung. How did He deal with them? So we need to know our Savior if we're going to be the, the kind of person who's not judgmental but forgiving and giving. We must also know ourselves. We must be self-aware enough to the point from what the Scripture says that we can say honestly in confession, I am her. We look into our life and we look into a mirror. That's my heart. That's how lost I am. I am am just as worthy to be condemned as she is. We are her. We were the fallen. The Savior raised us. We could not heal ourselves from our self-inflicted wounds. We could not raise ourselves from the graves that we had dug. There's no picking ourselves up off the floor. Jesus had to do it. Jesus is the one who did it. It was all of His grace, divine intervention, and the pouring out of lavish mercy in our lives. And still, even though we are the raised now, we have been born again, born from above. Those of you who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, even at this very moment, we owe all good in our lives to God, completely to God. It's all of His grace. Now, we... You would think, wouldn't you, that knowing yourself should be easy enough. I mean, I spend a lot of time with me. <laughs> and, the, you know, you would think that, okay, I would know myself pretty well. But we don't, because our hearts are so deceptive. We look into a mirror, and we see what we want to see. And we ignore what we don't want to see. And this is why we can throw an absolute fit over somebody else's sin and keep calm and carry on with our own. We can absolutely nail somebody to the wall when we are guilty of the same thing and completely blind to it. I think we have four options when it comes to sin. Four options. You can deny it, you can minimize it, you can justify it, or you can humbly confess it to God and receive the freeing mercy of Jesus Christ. But the first things are very easy for us to do. We can deny it. I didn't do that. What are you talking about? No, it wasn't me. We can minimize it. It's not that big of a deal. That's nothing compared to whatever. We can justify it. Well, I did that because of this, and because of those factors, those circumstances, that was actually the right thing to do. Deny, minimize, justify, and stay in those sins, or we can humbly confess them to God and be liberated in the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be judgmental? How can we harshly condemn the lost? You see, in the fight against sin today, you and I as Christians, we have divine advantages in this spiritual combat. Again, we've been born again from above, and we have divine advantages by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. How can we condemn the world 
and be judgmental about their style of life unduly, harshly, when they don't have the advantages we have. We fail miserably in spite of those advantages. Is it any wonder that the world fails miserably? And so if we condemn them, if we are judgmental against them, we're only multiplying our own miserable failures. You know, the worst kind of bigot is the religious kind because the religious kind presumes that he judges from heaven's seat and thinks that he got there on his own. And I guess the real question would be, does he actually know mercy at all? Does he realize what saves a man and how desperately needy we are? So when we know our Savior and we know his lavish mercy upon us, we can put the natural judgmentalism of our hearts to death and we can be free to forgive and be free to give. And this is like, this is kind of both sides of the same coin kind of thing. Forgive, we're free to wipe out the wrongs that people have done against us. And in giving, so we not only wipe out wrongs, but in giving we pour good into their lives in place of that. And the promise is this. When we give as we have been given, God will give us more of the same. And there is nothing better than that. I want you to read this with me at the end of verse 38, our second part. Jesus said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now this is foreign terminology to us because we didn't live in first century Palestine and that kind of marketplace, but that's the terminology that Jesus is using. He's drawing this image from the marketplace. I want to read you something I think will uh, illuminate this verse for us. There was a pattern. First, the seller of the corn would take the standard measure and pour in the grains until that measure was three quarters full. Then he'd give it a good shake with a rotary motion to make the grain settle down. Then he filled the measure to the top and gave it another shake. Next, he'd uh, press the corn together strongly with both hands. Finally, he'd heap it into a cone, tap it carefully to press the grains together, and even bore a hole into the cone so he could pour in a few more grains until there was literally no more room for a single grain. In this way, the purchaser was guaranteed an absolutely full measure. It could not hold more. Back to verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap when you put judgmentalism to death and live forgiving. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The picture is that when you give lavishly, as you have been given lavishly, you will very nearly drown under the blessings of God. Ours is the God who graces us with the exceeding measure. 
Remember those words from Ephesians chapter 3? He is able to do more than we could ever ask or think. So it's not that, okay, you give some, and then God gives some, and it's just this reciprocal thing, you know, give and take relationship. It's that you give lavishly humanly, and God gives lavishly divinely. And there is a tremendous difference between the two. What kind of reward is this? I think because we know who our God is, we can, we can answer this question. Jesus is using an earthly image, but I don't believe for a second that he is talking about earthly, temporal reward. Because our God is the God who gives more than we could ever ask or ever think. It's beyond imagination, beyond human comprehension, standards of measurement. So I think he's speaking absolutely of God. When we give of God from what God has given, the promise is that God will give to us more of himself. Now, if that's disappointing to you, ah, man, I was really wanting, uh, you know, whatever. If that's disappointing to you, I'm disappointed for you because there is no greater gift than God. I can imagine $20 billion. I'll never have it, but I can imagine it. You know, I can imagine what Bill Gates has or whatever. You know, whoever is on the the top of the rich list these days, I can imagine that. There's measurement for that. You can crunch the numbers. But God gives more than we can ask or think. So I don't believe he's speaking in earthly terms. He is saying to us, when we give from what we have been given in him, we will have more of him. We will draw nearer to him. And this is the greatest gift of all. God is the gift of the gospel. God God is what makes glory glorious. God is the one who makes heaven heavenly. Heaven is not heaven without God, without our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift that he promises us to give. Let's move on to verse 39. He also told a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, in the book of Matthew, on a different occasion, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus used the same parable, and it's a pretty familiar metaphor to us, the blind leading the blind, something we still throw around today. In Matthew, Jesus was warning us to beware of false teachers, those who are spiritually blind, who lead people to eternal destruction. But here, Jesus is not warning us about false teachers. He's warning us about ourselves. We will be the blind guides if we don't know ourselves. We must know ourselves. It can't be stressed enough. For instance, this is going to be maybe hard for some to swallow, but in order to come to Jesus... Not only must we realize that our sin makes our hearts wretched, but so does our morality. So does our morality. 
Bill brought this, uh, this passage up in Sunday school this morning. The Bible says, our right, apart, apart from Jesus, apart from Christ, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Meaning that in coming to Jesus, we must repent of not only our sin, but we must repent of our righteousness too in coming to Christ. And I know that sounds backward, counterintuitive, Brenda. Sounds counterintuitive. Inside thing, never mind. As, but as backward as that sounds, as paradoxical as that sounds, those who know their hearts truly know that this is true. This is absolutely true. Think, let's think about it. Have you ever been glad that you're not like that braggart? You know, we see the Pharisee who is thanking God in public. We'll see this later in Luke. He's thanking God in public. He says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I am not like that tax collector who, you know, whatever. But I do this and this and this. And we look at that Pharisee and say, Lord, I thank you that I am not like him. We're glad we're not like him. We're proud that we're not proud. And all of a sudden, we've pulled back another layer of pride in our hearts. We, we look down on the proud from a perch that we've built for ourselves. We, we pull back this one layer of pride, and we find another layer underneath it that is more subtle, but more, more sinister still than the first layer of pride. We must know ourselves. If we're not going to be blind guides... We're to be like Him. We must know our Savior. Again, stress that. That's verse 40. That we are to conform to Him. Jesus is the teacher in this, in verse 40. We are the disciples. We're not going to surpass Him, but we must always strive to conform to Him. So, think about Jesus. Again, how do we know our Savior? Look at Him hanging there upon the cross, dying. He's not there saying, I don't have the right to make any kind of moral evaluation. I don't have the right. I'm not in the position to say whether you're executing me is right or wrong. Obviously not saying that. Rather, he prays that they, his executors, would be saved from their wrong. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of one of his disciples, Stephen. On the other side of the ascension of Jesus, back into glory, Stephen Dying, being executed, criminally being stoned to death. His body is broken, but his love for his executors remains strong. The stones are raining down on him while his prayers for them go up to the Lord. And he says, like Christ, Lord, do not lay the sin to their charge. And the scriptures then say, and he fell asleep. This is what Jesus calls us to, to know his heart to know His love for sinners. And then to imitate that heart. To follow Him. If we would give as we have been given, no matter what we found out about a sinner, no matter how well we knew a sinner, every fault and falling short, and all of it, all the scandalous stuff, secret stuff, if we would know a sinner but give as we have been given, we would still love them. 
We would still have compassion. We would still have tenderness toward them. We would still reach out to them and want them not gone, but in with us because we are known. I said, if we give as we have been given, because we are known, you and I, through and through, and yet loved from east to west. And the Bible says higher than the heavens. That's how we have been loved. If we know our Savior, our teacher, and we know ourselves, we won't be the blind guides. We will be able to help people in love to come to Christ. So let's read verses 41 and 42 again. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Before we can be a truly helpful guide to people, again, we must know ourselves. We must know the logs that protrude from our own eyes. See, you can see from this verse, Jesus, when Jesus says, do not judge, he is not saying to you, do not make any moral evaluations. He is not saying, do not use spiritual discernment. He is not saying, do not judge absolutely no way in any case. He shows us how we must use our discernment. So, he is not saying again, don't make moral evaluations. He is saying, evaluate yourself first. He is not saying when he says, do not judge. He is not, please hear me. Because this verse is going to be thrown in your face one day. But understand, Jesus is not saying, mind your own business, period. He's saying, mind your own business first. Mind your own business first. And the image he draws is really cartoonish. The word he uses for this word translated log is a load-bearing beam. So this blind guide has a load-bearing beam protruding from his eye and actually thinks that he has something to offer the guy who has a little fleck hung on an eyelash. He's like, man, you got an issue there. But I think I can help with that. First, let's flush that thing out for 15 minutes because all the directions say that. We'll start there. The guy with the eye fleck may have a legitimate issue, but the guy with the eye log has absolutely no room to talk. And yet again, Jesus is not forbidding moral evaluations or moral judgment calls. He is saying, you start with your own eye. Start with your eye. Flush out your eye or cut out that thing, as the case may be. And then you will see clearly and you can help your brother. You can help your sister. For no good tree bears bad fruit, verse 43, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Once again, it's very clear that when Jesus said, do not judge, he did not mean don't make any moral evaluations because that's exactly what these verses are for. He's saying, use your spiritual discernment. And yet he means for us to start with ourselves. 
How can we know ourselves? That's what is of utmost importance. We must know ourselves. Well, the fact is we can only know ourselves to a degree because of the deception that's in our hearts. Jeremiah said, the deception is so bad. Jeremiah 17, um, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, or in the King James, wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand the deception of their own hearts? So we must know ourselves to the point that in that self-awareness, we are humbled by it. You must know yourself to the point that your self-awareness humbles you. And then you can say to a brother in the church or to a sister in the church, listen, if you see any brambles where you should be seeing grapes, don't be nice to me, love me and tell me. Because I might not be able to tell. I might not be able to get it right. So this is a matter. This is one of the purposes of marriage. This is for spouses with one another. And this is for brothers in the church with their brothers and sisters with their sisters. And I say that for the most part. I'm not saying that there is no mutual accountability and admonishing between brothers and their sisters. But in matters of the heart... Men know men best, and women know women best. And so the concentration of our ministry to one another is brother to brother and sister to sister and, and spouses with each other. And the purpose of this evaluation and the revelation of it is not, you know, just to evaluate and, and just to tell. The purpose is change. The purpose is change. So that we can become what Jesus Christ saved us to become. And we can't do that without our, the mutual ministry of the covenant family. Brothers to brothers and sisters to sisters. So I want to close with this encouragement to you. No matter what you have done. No matter where you have been no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you can change. You can change. doesn't matter how deep the habit goes, how obsessed you are about the thing that you know is not right. You can change because that is the power of the gospel. In the gospel is the power of God to resurrect the dead and reform his people. It's the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there may be, you may have a heart, a bush full of brambles when there should be grapes. But you can change. You can change. I don't believe you can change on your own. I believe that's why God gave you a spouse, a Christian spouse. I believe that that's why you're in a church. That's why I'm in a church. So I have brothers who can say, that's not right. That shouldn't be there. 
And I should have enough humble humility in my self-awareness to say, I wouldn't have seen that if you didn't tell me. You're right. This is wrong. I need to change. That's what the church is for. We must know ourselves and we must know our Savior so that we can be the kind of people who are not harsh and judgmental, but forgiving, giving, so we can pour ourselves in humility, joyfully into one another's lives. That's the beauty of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the promise that no matter what we have done and where we have been by the gospel and and through the means of the church you have given us, we can change. We don't have to stay where we are, but we can follow after Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would help every single person here to know themselves. Lord, if there is someone here who hasn't yet realized from their hearts, from their record, that they need Jesus. I pray that you would give them eyes to see it. I pray, Father, that you would give them eyes to see that Jesus saves and Jesus only. I pray, Father, that there would not be anyone here that does not have their faith resting in Jesus. May we never trust in ourselves. I thank you for his life in our place and his death in our place upon the cross and his resurrection triumphing over the grave. I pray that all of our hope, the the hope of every single heart here would be in Christ. And I pray as we go through this Christian life, Father, that we would draw nearer to you and, and we would know our Savior and our heart would conform to his heart so that even as we call people to repentance, even as we point out sin, we never mean to put them down, but to lift them up in the gospel, not to tread all over them, but longing for them to see, to realize for themselves eternal life in Christ. Father, would you use us to reach the lost, reach the wayward, those going astray? May we be ever humble and ever loving like you have been with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.